Today, I'm going to break all of the church rules. <laughs> Somebody said good. All right. <laughs> Easy crowd. <laughs> when I was acquiring my degree, I had a professor one time tell me, listen, you're going to get up on stage. People are going to be expecting to hear certain things from you. But you always have to remember that in the audience, there's going to be people who have never been to church. There's going to be people who are coming back to church or just, you know, dipping their toe back in the water to test it out. And so to accommodate for those people, you want to do three things. You want to keep your lesson simple. You want to um, usually maybe to do it simple, just do one verse. You just focus on a verse. And then you want to stay positive the whole time. Maybe smile the whole time. Simple, one verse, positive. Today, we're going to break all of those rules. <laughs> My goal, and what we're going to do today, is we're going to look at a fairly lengthy passage that is extremely complicated. <laughs> it's one of those you read, and you're just like, I have no idea what I just read. And then I'm also going to be extremely negative this morning. But I promise we are going to actually go somewhere with this. We're going to end up somewhere at the end of this, and we're going to have talked about one of the most important elements of the Christian faith. Now, let's start with the negative stuff. I don't know if you know it or not, but when somebody says, bless your heart, that is not a good thing. Are you familiar with this? Tracy, I know you're familiar with this. Maybe if you're not from the South, if somebody says, bless your heart, what they're actually saying you're an idiot. <laughs> That's what they're saying. And I don't want to be the one to break that bad news to you, but it's true. If somebody says, bless your heart, they're just saying you're an idiot in the kindest way. So I want to tell you my favorite bless your heart story. This was early on in my ministry. I was probably 19, 20 years old, and I was doing my first funeral. So the lead pastor came and said, hey, this is an easy one. All you have to do, it's a it's lady in the church, she was older, she knew Jesus, it's a graveside, there's only going to be a couple people there. All you need to do, say a message, tell a story, say a prayer, sing a song, you're done. Okay, cool, I can do that, right? So we're there, and I do those things. I give a little message, tell some stories, say a prayer, and then I'm going into singing the song. And I did my homework, okay, with all of this, and I knew that this lady's favorite song was a song that we just sang. It's Amazing Grace. Everybody say Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, right? Easy enough. All right, so I go in to lead this song, assuming that if I lead into this, the other people will join in and we'll sing this together. They didn't. <laughs> so here I am, casket, grandma's in the casket, there's a hole in the ground, I go in to sing this song, and you might be wondering, well, Peyton, at least are you a good singer? The short answer, no, I'm not. So here I am giving my first and only solo of Amazing Grace. I close my eyes, I'm rededicating my life to Jesus because I don't think I'm going to survive this. I'm singing this song, this brutal solo, and a bug flies into my mouth and hits that little dangly thing in the back of your mouth. I think it's called a uvula, but that doesn't sound appropriate for Sunday, so we're just going to call it the dangly thing back there. Just knocks me right in the dangly thing. 
Now, in a split second, I have to make a very strategic decision, right? Do I, A, hack a loogie onto grandma's grave, or do I, B, take one for the glory of God in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and just swallow that bad boy, right? Now, what do you think I did? Well, of course I did not hack a loogie on grandma's grave, okay? I took one for the team, swallowed that bad boy, done, right? Now, you would think, man, that's a pretty rough story. It's got to have ended there, and you would be wrong. So we're there. I finish up this brutal solo. Everybody is looking at me wondering, why did this guy just do a solo of Amazing Grace? And I'd never done a funeral before, so I don't know how to close these things. Like, do I just walk away? Do I sit there and start counseling people by the graveside? Do I hand out tissues? What is my job? The only thing I had was what I'd seen people do in movies. And what I've seen people do in movies is they do this moment where they put their hand on the casket and they'll say something, usually like from ash to ash to dust to dust. Now what comes after that? See, I didn't know either. So here I am, hand on the casket, ash to ash, dust to dust. My mind's racing because I'm already in this thing, right? My hand's on that casket. I got to say something. So I'm looking around at everybody else. Everybody's really sad. Everybody could use a, a, a little laugh. So my hand on this casket, I say from ash to ash to dust to dust, I hope this casket doesn't rust. Amen. <laughs> See... <laughs> I thought it was funny too. But nobody there was laughing. So I'm walking back to the car. The funeral director comes up to me and says, first funeral? I said, yeah. He puts his arm around my shoulder and says, bless your heart. <laughs> You're nothing but an idiot. Bless your heart, right? Turn to the person next to you and say, bless your heart. Bless your heart. Turn to your second choice, the person on the other side. Bless your heart. Yeah, you're an idiot too. Yeah, we're all idiots in here. Here we are. Welcome to the Vero Beach Church of Christ. We're going to break all of the rules today, right? I'm going to talk about a verse that's fairly complicated. We're going to read multiple verses, and we're going to be a little negative this morning. Let's go a little bit more with that negative train. I want to tell you about another idiot. His name was John. John. Okay, John was born in 1725. John was an absolute mess. He worked on a ship, right, and was just hated by everybody, all of the shipmates, and this is a completely true story. He was wrathful. He was a raging drunk. Everybody didn't like to be around John. He had this mouth on him. I think it's where cussing like a sailor came from. I think it came from John because of his mouth. In fact, his nickname was the great blasphemer. That's this guy's nickname. Like, hey, great blasphemer, how you doing today? Like, that's this guy in a nutshell. In fact, his language was so bad, the captain is quoted saying, quote, not only did John use the worst language I've ever heard, but he created new words that exceeded the limits of verbal debauchery. That's a whole other level of bad, right? John was so hated, this great blasphemer was so hated by his shipmates, one time he fell overboard, and instead of throwing life preservers towards him, they threw harpoons at him. Like, they're like, get, get rid of this guy. He was a mess, right? And the captain tried to correct him one time. 
he stripped him down naked on the ship deck and had him flogged eight dozen times in front of the 350 men just to try to correct him, which obviously didn't change anything. In fact, it created more hate inside of John that one night he developed a plan. He would kill the captain and then take his own life. That was his plan. God had other plans, though. That night, a huge storm hit the ship. Now, sailors aren't afraid of much, but they are rightly so afraid of storms in the middle of the ocean. I would be too, right? You're floating on a piece of wood, and the, one of the worst tragedies, uh, one of the worst disasters that can happen is happening to you in the middle of a black ocean, right? They're petrified. John is petrified. In fact, he's so scared that the God that he had been blaspheming, he cries out to and says, God, if you're there, please save my life. And God does. He lives. The storm goes away. Everybody on the crew lives. John is reflecting on that moment. And he wonders, in my moment of most need, why did I go to God? The one that I have been cursing this whole time. That guy, who you know by the name of John Newton, started reading scripture, was transformed by the grace of God. One day he put pen to paper and wrote the lyrics in 1772 to the hymn we now know as Amazing Grace, the hymn that you just sang. So whenever you sing that song, I want you to feel the weight of the story of a man who was known as the great blasphemer who experienced the amazing grace of God and wrote words like this, Amazing Grace, how sweet that sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. Twas grace, everybody say twas grace. Twas grace that taught, twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Win in Romans. We're taking a deeper look at this letter written to Christians in the ancient city of Rome. Now, this is one of the most difficult books, but one of the most formative books that we have. In fact, scholars and historians say, if you believe in the Holy Scriptures or not, that the letter to the Romans has been the most formative piece of literature that we have ever had in all of history. What they mean by that is there's no other piece of literature that has shaped human beings more than the book of Romans. It shaped the way we live, shaped the way we act as a society, shaped our worldviews. And so, if anything, it's important for us to understand this thickly theological and sometimes challenging book of Romans. And today, and how we're doing in the series is we're dissecting and looking at sections. Today, we're looking at the five-letter word, grace. Grace. Amazing grace, in fact. And to be honest with you, I feel entirely inadequate to do justice to telling you about the unfathomable, amazing grace of God. There's no amount of words or ideas that I can conjure up that will explain to you what is happening with grace. So let's read Paul's words about grace. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. 
Now, let me give you a warning ahead of time. Some of you are going to get lost as we read this. You're going to read it, and it's going to be like, I'm understanding, and then you're going to swerve off, and it's like, I don't know what I'm reading anymore. That's okay. Completely okay. We don't hide from things that are difficult. We lean into them and seek to understand them, right? So you may get lost. Here, let me give you some comfort. One, we're reading this out of context. We're just diving in this morning and reading it. So give yourself some grace there. We're also not reading words that were written for you in 2023. We're written words of a very smart Hebrew who's writing in this circle logic way. So he's going to repeat stuff. He's going to come back around, and it's not our normal reading style. So it's okay if you don't understand at first glance, but let's read this together. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12, says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Focus here, verse 15. But the free gift. We're going to come back to that, so lock that in. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Not done, last section. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Key verse right here, verse 18. This is a summary of everything we're reading. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might, might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God bless the reading of the scripture. Amen. Everybody take a deep breath. All right. A lot there, right? A lot there. Here is the bottom line. I want you to think about all that one man can accomplish for the many. All the things that one person can accomplish for the many. Think of Thomas Edison, who in his lifetime was able to develop 1,093 patents. 1,093 unique inventions from the first record player to the light bulb to the earliest version of the motion picture camera. One man impacting a lot of people, even people today. Think of Albert Einstein, who developed quantum physics or the theory of relativity. Not only did one man give us a better idea of what's in the universe that we live in, but 
his studies would lead to things like the atomic bomb. Think of Abraham Lincoln, who through the Emancipation Proclamation was able to free 3.5 million slaves to give them their freedom again. Think of women like Queen Esther, the right woman in the right place at the right time through boldness was able to save the Jewish race, race from the Persia genocide. Think of Moses, who went up alone on Mount Sinai, heard from God, and was able to deliver God's law to God's people. And you know all these names, or the majority of them. You've heard these names. You recognize the impact a person can have. And you may think, well, that's unreachable. Let me tell you about another man you probably haven't heard of. Dashrath Minji. Dathrath Minji. You probably didn't talk about him this week, but that's because he's a man who lived a quiet life in the hills of India. He lived tending his goats and caring for it and loving his wife. One day, a tragic accident made his wife fall down a hill and was in critical condition. The problem was Dathrath Minji's village had a large mountain covering between him and the local hospital, the local town. It took 45 miles around this mountain to get to the hospital. They didn't have a car. His wife would not make it through this. And afterwards, Dothroth Menji returned home, sold his goats, bought a hammer and a chisel, and for 22 years, he dug into a mountain. After 22 years, he came out with 30 feet high, 20 feet wide, 360 feet long, connecting his town to the local village, turning a 45-mile trek to just four miles. One man, 22 years, absolutely impressive. Somebody once said, the individual activity of one man with a backbone is better than a thousand men with a mere wishbone. One man can really change the world. And just like somebody can change the world for good, so can one man change the world for bad. The most classic example is Adolf Hitler, who at his hand killed six million innocent people. My point is Paul's point in our text. One man can do a lot. Adam, at the beginning of your Bible, did a lot. He birthed the seed of rebellion that would grow that would fester, that would destroy throughout all humankind. And if you're new to the Christian faith, or if you're a thinker, you might be thinking to yourself, wait a second, why does the mistakes of one man that I don't even know, I don't know him from Adam, get it? Okay. I don't know him, why does his problem, his sin, his rebellion affect me today? I want to answer that using the words of a government agency whoa, you wouldn't expect to hear a government agency. Well, this is one from 1926. It's actually the Minnesota Crime Commission of 1926 wrote this document trying to explain the rising crime rate, all right? Now, you wouldn't hear anything I'm about to read in any kind of government agency today, but I just want you to listen. 1926, Minnesota Crime Commission is writing about the rise of, of crime trying to explain it, and I think they have their hand on something here. I quote, Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, 
his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, whatever. If you deny him these, he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. Whoa. Pretty wild. And like I said, you wouldn't hear that said any context today, right? We wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. But I think there, what, what I'm trying to point out and what the Minnesota Crime Commission is saying in a roundabout way is describing this word that we call depravity. Depravity. Now, it sounds pretty rough. It sounds pretty harsh, and that's because it is. The word depravity means we have been marked by corruption. It doesn't mean you're as bad as you possibly could be. You could always be worse. There's always worse things you could do. What it means is that you are as bad off as you possibly can be. Meaning without God, separate from God, you and I can't get any worse. Or as Paul would say it, we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. We have all been called enemies of God because of our sinful nature. And I understand that's not popular today. Our culture is going to push back at that and say, no, 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 no. You cannot say that I am a sinner. You don't have that right. You can't say that I'm bad. I'm not bad. I make good choices. I do the right thing. I'm sitting at church right now. What do you mean I'm bad? You can't say that about me. I'm not any worse than anybody else. I told you we we're going to say a little bit negative news today, so let me just say it to your face. You are bad. I am bad too. We are all bad. We've been born, and by our nature, we are actually sinners. It is, it is decisions that we make early on. It is selfish desires that are bred inside of us because we are sons and daughters of sinners as well. And it's been passed down to us all the way from Adam and Eve who sinned in the garden. We inherit this nature of sin. Here's a picture of my grandpa, my father, me, and my oldest son, Arlo. You would probably know by just looking at that picture that we're all related. We pass on traits to each other. I have more hair than all of them, so I got that going for me, right? But other than that, it's like you can tell. Now, we all live different lives. We all go our own ways. We've all made different decisions, but we have similarities about us. There's something that's been passed down through us. Sin operates the same way. Not that you inherit your father's sins, but this nature of sinning passes down through us. It's in every person. It trickles down. By nature, we are not good. We are deserving of wrath. And some of you are here today and you're still thinking, I knew I shouldn't have come to church this morning. I knew it was going to be like this, the fire and brimstone beating the pulpit, telling me how bad I am. So let's just do an exercise together, all right? An easy exercise, we're going to play a game. And the game has two rules. Rule number one, you have to play. <laughs> if you're in the room, you have to play. Rule number two, you have to be honest, all right? No lightning strikes in here this morning. You got to be completely honest with us, okay? All you have to do is raise your hand. 
All right? Okay, first question. How many of you have ever told a lie in your life? Put your hand up. All right, put it up high. Put it up, maybe not proud, but up. Okay, keep your hand up, keep your hand up real quick. If someone around you doesn't have their hand up, I want you to point at them and say, liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> All right? All right, hold on, one more, a little bit longer. Put your hand up, put your hand up. I want you to look around this room. Look around this room. Look at all of the imperfect people in this room. There is no hierarchy of the brokenness in here. We have all been there. Okay, you put your hand down. Second question. Second question. Remember, be honest. Be honest. How many of you have ever stole? You've stolen something. You've been a thief. Okay, my hand is up. My hand is up. Okay, keep your hand up. If your hand is not up, you know who to watch out for. They walk by you, you just pat, wallet, phone, got it. Okay, put your hand down. I'm just helping you out, all right? All right, do not raise your, do not raise your hand for this next one. I don't need any fights or bickering on the way home. Just, we'll keep it to ourselves on this one. How many of you have ever lusted? You've ever lusted. You know what Jesus says about that? Jesus says, the one who has lusted has, has already lusted after a woman. Right? So what does that make us? What does that make us? Well, let me tell you what it makes you. It makes you a lying, thieving adulterer. That's what it makes you. <laughs> Welcome to the Vero Beach Church of Christ, where it makes you feel really good about yourself. Bless your heart, right? <laughs> Bless your heart. Bless your heart. Bless all of our hearts. Why am I hitting this problem? Why am I drilling down on it? It's because of this. We have to understand that guilt. Guilt is not a bad thing. We make it seem like guilt. Shame is a different thing. What shame is a different, we'll put that to the side. I'm talking about guilt. Guilt is not bad because guilt is the first step towards grace. Whenever you feel guilt, you are in the starting point to understanding what grace is. Or in other words, if we don't see ourselves as a sinner, we'll never see our need for a savior. The world wants to sell to you that you are not a sinner that you are good in and of yourself, that you're good to go. You be you. You make your own decisions. You have your own truth. You're okay. Just live your life and you'll be happy. That's what the world's going to market, package, and sell you until it's not good enough. And then they'll sell you something else to tell you to believe that lie. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. We are sinners. This isn't a beating the pulpit, fire and brimstone. This is a reality and I want to tell you why it's a good thing to recognize that. Because Jesus did not come for the righteous. He didn't come for the healthy. He didn't come for people who have their life together. So if you want to sit back and polish your halo, go right ahead. I'm just telling you, Jesus didn't come for you. He came for the people who were looking for something better than anything they'd found before. Anything this world had to offer, anything they could conjure up in their own heart. They needed something more. You likely have felt that before. You need something more. You need what Paul says in verse 15. I told you we'd come back to that. You need a gift. Completely outside of yourself, freely given to you. And that's what Paul says. And I want you to imagine who Paul is. I mean, Paul, the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, before he was converting people to Christianity, he was killing Christians. And if you're new to church or you're new to the Bible, you may not know that, that the apostle Paul was killing. Now, we have a tendency to say, ah, oh, that was thousands of years ago. That's not that big of a deal. Let me tell you, a few years ago, we witnessed Christians being taken onto a beach 
to fall on their knees with a cloth over their head and a blade to their neck told, deny Christ or lose your life. And whenever you watched that video or whenever you heard that story, you probably thought to yourself like me, this is evil. I'm looking evil in the face. I can see it with my own eyes. Now imagine Paul, who didn't give people a quick death, but would gather stones and beat people with stones until they took a long-lasting, slow-last breath. That's the Apostle Paul. That's the one who's writing our Bible. And just imagine him telling you that story, saying, yeah, I had, I had curses on my breath as I went to the high priest of how I'm going to squash all of these little Christs. The way is what they called themselves. And then a bright light completely blinded me. And a voice that I recognized, but I don't know why, said, Saul, Saul, which was my name before Paul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, Lord, who are you? Show me. And so he led me. He led me to a Christian, a follower named Ananias, a guy who should have feared me, a guy who should have hated me, but instead a guy who took me in, who put his hands on me, who prophesied over me, and scales, like scales, fell off of my eyes. I was blind, but then I could see again. I was the worst of worst. I was the most brutal, filthy of sinners, but God gave me a gift, a free gift. I didn't deserve it, but he gave it to me. And I think that's what Paul was talking about in Romans 5. He wants you to recognize how broken we actually are. But God, but this free gift, but it's not the end of the story. You see, there's nothing you can do to earn that gift. There's nothing Paul did. He He didn't do something right, and then Jesus announced himself to him. It was given to him. It was a gift. Grace is a glorious commodity of heaven that can only be received and experienced when we surrender our will to God the Father. And here's the thing. Our world cannot offer you grace. It can't. No matter how much it tries, the world cannot offer grace. Why? Because the world is in a constant need, a state of need. The world is constantly wanting and obtaining and getting and feeling empty and it constantly wants and you can only give grace out of utter completeness. God is only able to extend grace because God doesn't expect anything in return. It is a gift that's given. Now he says, this gift is now given to you. Now in that grace, go and do something different. And we'll see that in Paul's life, we'll see that in all these other people's lives, but the first step is receiving that gift. And as the song of Amazing Grace says, grace compromises everything that we are, everything that we believe, everything that we understand. So I want to land this plane and prepare you for worship. And I don't mean worship that we're about to do in here. This is not the only version of worship that you do. You worship all week long. You worship in your cubicle or in your office tomorrow morning. Whenever you have to decide, do I let greed or bitterness take over my heart and make decisions or something else? Whenever your kids directly disobey you, do something that you know they they know they shouldn't do, you have to choose something. Worship God and the decision and how you love them. And whenever your heart tells you to do something else 
that you know you shouldn't be doing, a decision that you have to pull back and realign yourself with God, all of these are acts of worship. Why? Because worship is recognizing the glory and the goodness of God, of praising him in that goodness. And it's not just what we do here. It's every moment of our life. And so as you enter into that hurting, desperate, afraid, angry world that is trying to suck you in, I want to read to you a verse that pulls me out of it every single week. Almost every single day, this verse goes through my mind. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. It is a gift, not a result of works, not a result of going to church, not a result of what church, not even a result of reading your Bible or prayers or giving your life to Jesus. It is a gift that's given to you so that nobody may boast. I know somebody here, I know a lot of people here, that you have been dead in your sins. You have been hurting, you were broken, but you were changed by the grace of God. I've heard your stories. I also know that there's other people in here right now who you're not just here to attend church. You're here because you're looking for something different. You, are, you desperately want something different. You keep eating and getting the supply of what the world has to offer you, and you keep coming back hungry. You're missing something in your life. You're desperate for something more. Let me tell you what you're desperate for. You're desperate for a God moment. A moment. That's all it takes. A moment. Could be a prayer. Could be a confession. Could be baptism. Could be rededicating your life to Jesus. Could be talking to somebody you haven't talked in a long time. But it's these little God moments that we capture. That we do something about. You're desperate for something more for something better than what the world has to offer, and it's not by your own good works. Look around the room one more time. Look at all of the people in this room. Nobody is here by their own works. Nobody will claim to be here because they've earned their way into this room. We are all here by the grace of God. We have all been redeemed and made right because of God's grace that is overflowing to us. We recognize that there's nothing that we could offer that will balance those scales. But Jesus has given us everything that we need to be made right with God again. So I don't know what your moment is. I don't know what you're looking for besides that grace that's being offered to you. So the best way to end is by using Paul's words again. Right after our section, complicated section, hard to understand. Hopefully we understand grace a little bit better. He goes into chapter 6 and he says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? Do I just be worse so then I'll get more? No, no, by no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It's our death now. We've died to something that's in the past we're born to something new. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, listen to this, why do we do it? What is the gift being offered to you? Here it is right here. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of
of life. That is the gift. It's given, but do you take it? That's what you have to answer. That's what's offered to you today, right now. I'm going to say a prayer. I don't know if this is something that God is working on you right now. If this is something that you need somebody to pray over you specifically, Tracy, myself, the elders, uh, if you need to meet later this week, this is the gift. This is the offer. You have to decide what you do with it. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for the amazing grace of God. A grace that there's nothing that we could do. John Newton didn't earn it. Paul didn't earn it. We, by all means, don't earn it. And we may try to compare ourselves to the filthiness of their life, but God, it exists in us. It is in our nature. We are sinners by default. We are rebellious. And so, Father God, this was born into the world by Adam, but it is relieved and transformed in the world by one man as well, Jesus Christ. The only thing that these two men have in, different, have, have in common, Adam and Jesus, is that what they did impacted all of humanity. So Father, we trust in the grace of you. We trust that what you say is true, that grace abounds, that grace covers all of our faults and our sins, that there's nothing that we can do to earn it, nothing we can do to pay back, but by our grace and through your grace, we live out a life as Christians, as followers, and as grace producers in the world. Father, thank you for this message that Paul gave us. Thank you for the reminder of our need for you and if there's somebody in this room who's struggling, who has pain, who's had bad news, who had, who had overwhelming news, who feels the weight on their shoulders, remind them what you said. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Father, may we rest in the abounding grace of our Savior, Jesus. We say this prayer in the name of that Savior, our Savior. Amen.